you would grab your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We have hit that point in the gospel of Luke that we quickly come to when really going through any gospel narrative. And that's the, the point of repetition, right? You get to chapter 8 and honestly you can probably come in and, and guess what the sermon is going to be primarily about. Right? This is going to be about the power and authority of Jesus yet again. Right? We could probably have the same points almost as last week, emphasizing the power and authority of Jesus. And you always get to this point when you read through the Gospels where it's like, this sounds pretty similar. Like, I think his main point is the same main point from last time. And you would be right. And so I, I just want to remind you this morning that repetition isn't a bad thing. Right? Repetition here is actually the point. Right? To, to use an illustration from a former pastor of mine, he, he reminded the congregation that uh, we, we all recognize the value of repetition in some areas. Right? If you just consider a few examples, if you've ever learned an instrument, then you know that the way to learn it is to practice scales over and over and over and over again until you do it mindlessly, until it's muscle memory, until the, the finger positions are just ingrained in your memory. Or to, to borrow an illustration from James K.A. Smith, thinking about learning to drive, right? When you got your license, you had to think about every little maneuver, the blinker, the pedals, the mirrors, all the rest. And now, we can practically daydream through our entire commute without consciously thinking or reflecting on our driving, which is utterly terrifying, if we're honest, right? But true nonetheless, <laughs> Or the, the point, piano scales make a pianist, hours behind the wheel make a driver, weightlifting reps make muscles, lots of miles make a runner, right? Repetition is the point, and so it is here with Luke. Remember, Luke's purpose for writing this is that Theophilus and all subsequent readers would grow in their certainty of what they've been taught about Jesus, and so Luke is going to lay out story after story, testimony after testimony of the power and authority of Jesus. Jesus has the power and authority to heal. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive. Jesus has the power and authority to command the winds and the waves. Jesus has the power and authority over the demons, right? He's going to continue to beat this drum over and over of the power and might of Christ. And as that drum beats, it should grow our certainty of Christ. That's the point. And so, yes, we're, we're stepping into yet another text about the power and authority of Jesus. And guess what? Next time in Luke, we're stepping into another text about the power and authority of Jesus. And that will be a theme from here on out in the Gospel of Luke. Right? We will see it over and over again, and that's a good thing. Right? Th this week, we're going to see that the Son of the Most High God has power and authority over the most devastating demons. And he can restore and transform the life of even the most unlikely of people. And so look at Luke 8, starting in verse 26 with me. Luke 8, starting in verse 26. God says this. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. 
when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter there. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So this morning, we're going to walk through our text by focusing on three main characters that encounter Jesus. So three main characters that encounter Jesus. So first, we see the demons encounter the Son of the Most High God in verses 26 to 33. So the demons encounter the Son of the Most High God. Second, we see the man encounter the Son of the Most High God in verses 34 to 36. And then finally, we see the people encounter the Son of the Most High God in verses 37 to 39. And so as we dive in, we, we enter into a scene here where Jesus and the disciples have now made it to the other side of the lake, just as Jesus had promised, mind you. And they have arrived in a country that starts with the letter G, right? <laughs> I, I say that because, one, it, it's hard to say, so fewer attempts the better uh, for me. And then two, because there's some debate as to where this actually is. The, the text says Gersinis, but it also footnotes two other possibilities, Gadarenes or Gergenes. Uh, we aren't really sure which one is intended by Luke. Uh, some of the parallel accounts say different things, and so we're not really sure. But the point is, they are in a land on the other side of the sea, and it's a Gentile land. We know that, one, because there's a herd of pigs there, and so it's not a Jewish land. It's a Gentile land, clearly. And this is important because it shows us that, that this is a continuation of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. And so what we see here is as soon as Jesus sets foot on the land, he's, he's greeted, but not quite by the, the welcome committee one might hope for, right? And, and this first encounter is our, our first point. The demons encounter the son of the most high God. We're introduced to a man in this story that has demons, and not, not just one, not just a, a few, but, but many, right? In verse 30, Jesus actually asks the name of the demons, and rather than give a name, they, they answer something that communicates quantity, right? Legion. Now, a, a legion, if taken literally, could mean somewhere around 6,000, 
which is crazy. But I, I don't know that we're necessarily meant to take it literally as much as it's meant to be something to communicate to us. There's a whole bunch, right? That's the point. A whole bunch of demons in the sky. He's inhabited by a bunch. Now, if you're new to reading the Bible or even if you're familiar with reading the Bible, sometimes demon stories can just sound bizarre to us, right? Like, do we really believe this stuff? Yes. Yes, we do, right? We, we really believe this. There's a spiritual realm that's real, and we recognize this as a reality. And the devil's real. Demons are real. And so just a brief word on, on Satan and demons here. Luke shares a story here that emphasizes the worst-case scenario when it comes to demons inhabiting someone. Right? He, he does not write this so that we can build our understanding of demons, what the norm is for demons, how they usually operate. Like, that's not the point. Rather, he, he chooses this abnormal story because in this abnormal story about demons that shows them at their worst, we see and we can build our understanding of who Jesus is in relation to the demons. Because we're seeing the worst case scenario and we're seeing Jesus demonstrate his power even in that. Right, so Luke's not trying to grow our understanding of demons here. He's far more concerned with our Christology than our demonology. Right? But I, I think it, it grows our appreciation and our awe for Christ's power if we understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about demons. Right? We, we don't know everything, certainly. And I would ask you, if you have hard questions about demons, talk to JR and not me. Uh, I would love that. Save those for the fall conference, please. Uh, we don't know everything, but as one author puts it, what we do know is that Satan leads an army of rebellious angels, according to Revelation 12, who are now cast out of heaven. Demons are these fallen angels. Demons are not ministering spirits, but they're, they're spoilers of everything that's good. Right? They're, they're powerful, but they're not all powerful. They're, they're cunning, but they're not all-knowing. They're active and present, but they're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere. Right? Demons carry out the, the destructive schemes of the devil with the goal of turning worship away from the one true and living God toward anything but him. And this man is inhabited by these demons. Right? To call this situation grim is, is really an understatement. There's, there's hardly strong enough language to convey how devastating these demons were in this man's life. Right? He, he was not in his right mind. For a long time, he had not worn clothes. Like, he doesn't even put a time frame on it. Just says, for a long time, this man has not worn clothes. No longer lived in his home, but, but lived amongst the dead in the tombs. Right? Likely because they counted him as good as dead. As one commentator put it, he was damaged, deranged, dangerous, and dehumanized. If you look at verse 29, we see that he had suffered seizures, that he was uncontrollably strong despite the best efforts of the townspeople. Right? He, would, he would just break through shackles and chains and be driven into the desert, into isolation by the demons. In the parallel account in Mark 5, we're told that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Like, this is... This is as bad as we could imagine. All of this illustrates the, and demonstrates the destructive power of evil and of these demons. No one in this city could help this man. There was no doctor. There was no chain strong enough. There was no help or hope for him as far as anyone knew. 
the best they could do is isolate this man and just keep their distance. But even these, these dreadful demons that no one can handle, they fear one who is greater than them. And we see this as soon as Jesus' boat hits that shore. Right? The demons knew this was not just another boat of fishermen that would be scared off or frightened. They knew as soon as that boat touched the shore, he's here, right? Made me think of, this is probably changing tones quickly here, but Blaze and the Monster Machines. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that or if you're caught up there, uh, but my son loves Blaze and the Monster Machines. If you're not familiar with Blaze and the Monster Machines, it's like talking monster trucks that race around. And so in one episode, it reminded me of this where uh, Crusher, who's kind of the antagonist to Blaze and always races against him and wants to beat him and does whatever it takes to beat him. He's racing in this undersea race. They can change into submarines. It, it, <laughs> this feels like it's going down. It seemed better on paper, I'll be honest, uh, <laughs> even as I'm saying it now. Uh, but anyway, he's down there and he's like, yes, Blaze isn't here. No one can beat me. But Blaze has this distinct horn sound. Dun, 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 dun. And as soon as Crusher hears this, he goes, oh no, Blaze is here. My chances of winning aren't as good. Right? And so that, that's the illustration. Like, he hears it and instantly he knows, oh no, one who's better than me has just arrived. And I knew it instantly. Right? And, and that's exactly what happens in this story. There was one on this boat that the demons were already familiar with, one who they knew, one who they feared. Right now, the text says here, when, when he saw Jesus, so it's a little confusing, when he saw Jesus, referring to the man, but just to, to clarify, the, the pronouns here, it gets tricky. Like, is it the man talking? Is it demons talking? The answer is yes. This man is so overtaken by these demons that, that, there's no separating their actions. The man is driven by the demons. And so this response we see here is the demon's response, right? And so notice what they do. He arrives on the scene, and the first thing they do is they cry out and fall down before him. And it isn't just any crying out. In this verse, we actually have the most unlikely answer to the question posed by the disciples from verse 25. If you remember last week, the disciples ask, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And now in this story, it's as if the demons shout back, it's Jesus, son of the most high God. That's who. Demons rightly know who he is. This is the same one who commands the winds and the waves, and they've come to deal with us. They know who this is. This is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the one who has authority over them, which is why they ask, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? Right? Essentially, they're saying, well, just go about your business, Jesus. Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us? Then they begin to beg, because according to verse 29, Jesus had commanded them to come out. And so the demons beg Jesus not to torment them. They don't want their activities on the earth to end. You see, they, they do this because they know how the story ends for them. In, in Revelation, we, we read in several places of this place called the bottomless pit, or we could translate it as the abyss, 
which is precisely what they asked Jesus in verse 31 not to send them to. This abyss is the place of torment and wrath that is destined for Satan and his demons. Friends, lest you ever be tempted to think that we're trapped in the middle of some cosmic battle between good and evil, between two equal powers, like this is some sort of Avengers versus Thanos situation where it could go either way. They're equally strong. We don't know how this will end. Let me encourage you and remind you that this is no contest at all. The demons know it as soon as Jesus sets foot off that boat. Jesus comes off the very waters he just rebuked, and the demons shudder. Bowing and begging is the posture of the demons toward Jesus. There is no doubt, there is no uncertainty about how this will play out. Christ has secured a decisive, definitive victory through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is sure. It will play out this way. There is no doubt. So those of you who are in Christ, fear not, friends. You're not trapped in the middle of some battle. (laughs) You're on the side of a battle that's already been won. And so we can say with Paul in Romans, I am sure that neither life nor neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Right? We we even see Christ's victory over the demons demonstrated here in our story. The the demons see this large herd of pigs. Mark tells us that it's about 2,000 pigs on this hillside. And so they beg Jesus to enter the pigs. They would rather inhabit something rather than be sent to the abyss. And so Jesus gives them permission here. And and notice even that, right? They aren't free to act apart from Christ's permission. They have to ask first. And so they, they enter into these pigs thinking, this will prolong our activities on earth. But in actuality, it leads to their demise. The demons are destroyed in the very waters that Jesus just calmed with a word. And so I think Luke does this and and tells this story and shares these details because it's like a double demonstration of Christ's power. The very waters that he just stilled are the very waters he, he uses to lead to the demise of those demons. Now, some have, have read this story about the pigs and, and they object at this point because they, they argue that no one who's perfectly good or who is, is virtuous would show such blatant disregard for the lives of those pigs, right? And, and maybe some animal lovers in the room kind of feel that sort of twinge of tension as well. And so I, I love how Ligon Duncan addresses this. He says this, When people say that because those pigs died, it shows that Jesus was not a good and virtuous man, they're forgetting three things. First of all, they're forgetting that Jesus himself has already said that his heavenly father cares even about the sparrows that fall from their nests. Secondly, they're forgetting that Jesus also says that people are more important than sparrows. And thirdly, they are forgetting the fate of this man with an immortal soul who is in danger not only of a continuous life of torment, but an eternal separation from God. And what Jesus showed here was a love and grace towards a man in captivity to sin who didn't deserve to be freed and didn't deserve to be forgiven, but Jesus did it anyway. It's a glorious 
picture of Jesus' love for lost souls. Right? And, and not only that, but I also think that the, the pigs here are part of the proof. Right? The proof is in the pigs. Is that the same? <laughs> I don't, maybe not. Right? But I, I think they're part of the proof that this man has truly been healed. That, that the demons really are out of him. All the pigs floating in the water are a harrowing testimony of the power of Jesus to heal this man. When the, the townspeople come, there would be no doubt that something has happened here. They would see the evidence of it. The demons really are out of him. This man has had an encounter with the son of the most high God, which is our second point. The man encounters the son of the most high God, verses 34 to 36. Look at the text again. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. The herdsmen just witnessed likely one of the, the crazier things they've ever seen in their lives. I would have to assume that this ranks very highly for them. Their, their herds are all dead in the water. The man who is a menace is different, and all because this Jesus spoke? And so they, they naturally, they rush to tell those in the city and throughout the country. And so people begin to come. They begin to gather. They've got to see these pigs. They've got to see this man from the tombs. Is he really better? What happened here? How did this happen? This man who is captive to evil, who is enslaved by these demons, and as such, given over to all kinds of sin and suffering, encountered Jesus, the son of the most high God, and it radically changed his life. The, the picture here is beautiful. Right? It's one of what we could call redemptive reversals, right? where, where Jesus is turning things on their head. Everything that this man lost because of evil and sin is restored. Before he was naked, now he's clothed. Before he was out of his mind, now he's in his right mind. Before he lived amongst the tombs, now Jesus tells him to return to his home. Before he was driven to isolation, now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. This man has been healed in every sense of the word. And I really think that this is much more than just a, a physical healing that happens here. I think this man's soul has been healed. I think he's been saved. And I, I think the text clues us in on this in a few ways. First, the, the word used in verse 36 for healed there, the man had been healed, it, it's a word that's often translated saved elsewhere. The man had been saved. It, it would appear that, that Luke intentionally chose this word that's kind of pregnant with meaning to convey a, a comprehensive healing. Second, the, the fact that this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus clues us in that he is now a disciple, right? Sitting at the feet of Jesus is the proper posture of a disciple. It's what we do, right? It's what we should be marked by. We're a people who sit at his feet. Right? And we see this later in Luke as well when Martha is frantically rushing about getting things ready and she's busy because Jesus is coming and she wants to make sure everything's great. And Mary, her sister who Martha's like, why aren't you helping me? Mary's busy sitting at the feet of Jesus. 
And Jesus reminds both of them, hey, that's the right spot for you. <laughs> that's what's good and necessary. That's the good portion. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is the proper posture of a disciple. And so the very fact that this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus leads me to believe that this man has been saved. And finally, just as we'll see in a few moments in verse 39, Jesus also commissions him to share what God has done for him. Right? All, all of this leads me to believe that this man became a Christ follower on this day. His soul was saved. He was made right with God through Jesus. Now, I want to be clear here. If you become a Christ follower, there is no guarantee that everything will get better for you in this life. We're not promised that. We don't know that everything will flip on its head as quickly as this man's life did. And, and I would even say, for this man, there was likely trials and difficulties that came with being sent back home to share the gospel with the very people who just told Jesus to leave. Right? That presents its own challenges in itself. But I, I just want to make sure we're clear that the call to follow Jesus is a call to obedience and worship through the trials and struggles of this life, knowing that he will be present with us every step of the way and knowing that one day he will return and he will make everything right. He will turn everything on its head and it will all be restored. It just may not be today. As those who believe that Christ is coming back, we long for and look forward to this day. When every not good thing, every pain, every tear, every sin is no more. And we get to be in the fullness of joy in the presence of our God and Savior. And we will experience redemptive reversals of our own that will be glorious. Right? Do you ever imagine that day? I think one of the, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is our imaginations. I think we just use it poorly very often to imagine the worst case scenario of everything instead of using it to envision a day to come when our king returns, when everything is set right, when sin is no more, when there's no more sorrow, there's no more suffering, there's no more hardship, when all of the things that ail us, all of the things that are hard and pressing in on us right now will feel like a distant, distant memory, if even that. <laughs> because we'll be in the presence of our king. Let's use our imagination that way, guys. Not imagining the worst case scenario of, ever, of every possibility. We should look forward to the day when our king comes. And friends, one, one other point of application here, lest we think this story doesn't have much for us, I just wanna remind you, we may know nothing about being captive to demons, right? To be utterly hopeless because evil and unclean spirits have taken up residence within us, I would imagine most of us haven't experienced that. It's not the norm, right? It's not the normal pattern that we see in scripture. But the Bible is very clear that we have all been enslaved to sin. We do know what captivity feels like to some degree. Ligon Duncan, again, aptly asks, what do you love? What do you want? What do you have that you're captive to, that you're enslaved to? Yes, this man is extraordinary. It's not every day that you meet someone inhabited by a host of demons. But every time you meet a Christless soul, indeed, you yourself were one, you meet someone who is utterly captive to sin. And they are no more capable of liberating themselves than this man was capable of liberating himself from this host of demons. Friends, if, if you're a Christian, 
this was true of you before Christ. Before Christ set you free from the law of sin and death. Before Christ took on the full penalty for your sin on the cross and was raised to life on the third day. This was true of you. And friends, now, because of Christ's work, you are free from every weight and sin that clings closely. And don't ever be deceived into thinking that you're not. <laughs> you have been set free by Christ. There is nothing so life-dominating, no sin, no family history, no sorrow, no pain that's too great for Jesus to handle. And I think this story stands as such a clear and loud testament of that fact. What, could, what possibly could Jesus not handle? Right? We get a worst-case scenario story to embolden us to believe that Jesus really can handle whatever comes in our lives. Jesus has the power and authority to transform our lives when we encounter him. But again, encountering him must mean more than simply hearing of him or even thinking nice things of Jesus. Right? To encounter Jesus in a way that our lives are transformed is to rely on him, to place our faith in him, to trust him, to turn from our sin and rely wholly on him. And not everyone will respond this way. And we even see this in how the people respond, which is our, our third point. The people encounter the Son of the Most High God. The people encounter the Son of the Most High God. Look at verses 37 and 38 again. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gersinis asked him to, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The, the fear people had in regard to the shackle-breaking power of the demons paled in comparison to the fear they had of the one who could command the demons with one word. They were much, much more afraid of this Jesus. And now, to be fair to them, fear here isn't an entirely inappropriate response, right? This kind of power and authority the kind of power and authority that belongs to God alone ought to create in us some sense of fear and trembling before him. We even see this throughout the, throughout the Old Testament. Right? Isaiah is a perfect example. What happens when Isaiah encounters the living and holy God? He falls on his face because he can't help but to do anything else. But the fear that seized these people was a fear that led them to, to drive away Jesus. It's a fear that, that overshadowed Jesus' goodness and grace. They feared his power in a way that didn't lead to worship. They feared a worse fate with Jesus being around than a legion of demons being around. Can you imagine that? Like They feared that it would be worse to have Jesus than the legion of demons. The legion of demons, they were content to just kind of isolate the man a little bit out of town in the tombs and just hope he doesn't come around much. But for Jesus, they were like, get out of here. We don't want you around. Right? They feared condemnation. Should we fear condemnation when we encounter Jesus? Should we be afraid like that as well? I'll say it depends. I'll say it depends. If you're in Christ Jesus, we do not fear. We have 
no need to fear the condemnation because Christ bore all the condemnation on himself at the cross. And we stand forgiven. There is not an ounce left of condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. And so we don't fear. We draw near with boldness and confidence to the throne of grace. We have access to our Holy Father through the finished work of Jesus in our place. And so, no, we don't fear. But friends, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never trusted in him, then the Bible is very clear. You rightfully stand condemned under your sin. For to reject Christ or, or even to be indifferent to him is to oppose him. It's to live for yourself. It's to live for your own glory instead of the glory of the one who made you and designed you and gave you purpose. But friends, thankfully, the very one who you have rejected is the very one who came to rescue stubborn, rebellious sinners like you and I. God sent his son, Jesus, to live without sin and yet to die in the place of sinners so that all who turn to him in faith, all who trust in him, can truly be made right with God, can be brought into relationship with him, can know him, can love him, can enjoy him, and can no longer fear condemnation. Friends, I, I plead with you today, if you don't know Jesus, I plead on behalf of Christ, would you be reconciled to Christ today? Turn to him in faith. Don't trust in lesser things. You cannot earn your way to him. There is no other way. And friends, if, if you're reconciled to God, then, then you too can share in the commission that this man is given in our text and the very commission that we've all been given to go then and tell of what Jesus has done for him. Right? The, the people respond with fear, so Jesus sends this man to the very people that need to hear this message of the gospel. Right? Look at verse 38 and 39 again. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Right? The, the man wanted to stay. Naturally, going home would be hard. Everyone has known him as the, the man from the tombs for how long? But Jesus says, go, proclaim how much God has done for you. Man, wouldn't this, be, this man would be so, so aware of all that Christ has done. Heck, the whole city would be so aware of all that Christ has done for him. Right? He went from naked, shackled, cutting, living in tombs to clothed, sane, home, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a lot to proclaim. It's evident. And so as I thought about this this week, it made me wonder why it's so hard for us to proclaim all that Jesus has done for us. And it made me question whether we have a hard time proclaiming all that Jesus has done for us because we spend so much time trying to minimize our sin instead of recognizing that we're a messed up people that need the grace of Jesus, right? Do we have a hard time reclaiming all that Jesus has done because we minimize our sin, and by minimizing our sin, we minimize the very work that Jesus died for, right? Do, 
do we spend so much time trying to put on a facade of, I got this together. I've got this. Instead of embracing the fact that we're weak and needy. Right? The thing is, weak and needy is precisely what God takes and transforms. Weak and needy is what Christ died for, friends. <laughs> it's weak and needy people who have much to proclaim to the city about what Jesus has done. The good news of the gospel is particularly good because we were particularly not good, right? It's one of the most remarkable gifts the world has ever known. <laughs> he transforms our lives. He takes dead hearts. He takes rebels and he gives them life. Right? He takes rebels and makes them sons and daughters. He, has, he takes broken people and mends their wounds and gives them strength to endure. So why do we so often act as if that's not the case? Right? It's not very compelling or amazing if we tell people... Jesus can radically transform your life. But thankfully, he only did a little in me. <laughs> it wasn't much work. <laughs> All right. right. We spend so much time trying to minimize our sin. Right? We even see this in how, what we confess. Yeah, I speed occasionally. but you know, Or yeah, I've told a little white lie every now and then. Or I get frustrated, but I rarely get angry. And that's the sin. Or... I'm a, you know, I get nervous occasionally, but I'm not, in, I'm not anxious. I trust God. I don't ever doubt his goodness or his plan. We spend so much time excusing our sin. So much time trying to come up with ways to soften the blow. But friends, what then did Jesus die for? This passage reminds us that this Jesus, this son of the most high God, came in power. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He speaks and the winds obey. He speaks and demons are cast out. He speaks and a man thought to be without hope becomes a disciple. Why in the world would we undermine this Jesus? Why would we undermine the work that our Savior has done for us? All for a reputation? So someone who has no power or authority thinks a little bit more of us? Oh, friends, let us not be that foolish. It's not worth it. Let's lean into this powerful Savior and God who, that God has so graciously given us. Let's be a people who believe Jesus really is great. And let's be a people who proclaim throughout the whole city all that Jesus has done for us. Right? That means being honest about our sin. It means confessing it to the Lord and confessing it to other believers who will walk alongside us. Right? How, how much more compelling of a witness for the gospel is it when we look in, people in the eye and say, I was messed up. I was a messed up sinner. I did things. I thought things. My heart was inclined in so many ways that you would be appalled by. But his mercy has been more. Every step of the way, he has been faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And I am confident that if you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, that he'll do the same for you as well. That's so much more compelling. It's a testimony of the power of the gospel in our own lives rather than saying, he's done some. Yeah, I was kind of good before and now I'm really good. That's not compelling at all, friends. It's compelling when we can testify to the power 
of our Savior. And in order to do that, we have to embrace the fact that we are weak and needy people. Right? And when we go with that message, we go with this gospel message, we've been promised in the Great Commission the very presence of the one who has all authority. Right? The one who stepped foot onto this Gentile land where a man tormented by demons showed up and lived, and he showed us yet again the Son of the Most High God has power and authority over even the most devastating of demons, even the most extreme of situations. And he can transform and restore even the most unlikely of sinners. So let's be a people certain certain about what we've been taught about Jesus, that he really can do this work. He really is about this business of saving sinners, and we were one. And we can testify to his grace. We can testify to his power and authority by pointing to what he's done in our own lives, and we can proclaim throughout the city all that Jesus has done. To the praise of his glorious grace. Amen? Let's pray, church.